Section 14 of Baled Hay by Bill Nye. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Fatherly Words N.W.P. writes, I am a young man of twenty-five years old. I am in love with a young lady of seventeen. Her mind being very different from mine, I have not told her of my love, nor asked to call on her. I thought her so giddy that she did not want any steady company. She is a great lover of amusement. She is a perfect lady in her deportment, although she is more like a child of fourteen than a young lady of seventeen. I think she is very pretty, but she seems to enjoy flirting to the greatest extent. One evening at a party I asked her to promenade with me, and she would not do it. I then asked her to allow me to bring her refreshments, which she would not do. I then asked her to let me take her home when she was ready to go, and the answer was, No, I will not do any such thing. And turning around, she left me. I have met her several times since. She always bows to me. Everywhere she meets me, she recognizes me pleasantly. Now, did I do wrong in asking her those privileges at the party, I having no introduction to her? I am still in love with her. After she had refused to promenade with you, and had declined to permit you to bring her refreshments, it was pressing matters rather too far for you to ask her to allow you to accompany her home whenever she was ready to go. Still, as she treats you kindly whenever you meet, it is evident that you did not offend her very deeply. Perhaps she sees that you love her, and does not wish to discourage you. You were no doubt a little previous in trying to get acquainted with the young lady. She may be giddy, but she has just about sized you up in shape, and no doubt, if you keep on trying to love her without her knowledge or consent, she will hit you with something, and put a Swiss sunset over your eye. Do not yearn to win her affections all at once. Give her twenty or thirty years in which to see your merits. You will have more to entitle you to her respect by that time, no doubt. During that time you may rise to be president and win a deathless name. The main thing you have to look out for now, however, is to restrain yourself from marrying people who do not want to marry you. That style of freshness will, in thirty or forty years, wear away. If it does not, probably the vigorous big brother of some young lady of seventeen will consign you to the silent tomb. Do not try to promenade with a young lady unless she gives her consent. Do not marry anyone against her wishes. Give the girl a chance. She will appreciate it, and even though she may not marry you, she will permit you to sit on the fence and watch her when she goes to marry someone else. Do not be despondent. Be courageous, and some day, perhaps, you will get there. At present, the horizon is a little bit foggy. As you say, she may be so giddy that she doesn't want steady company. There is a glimmer of hope in that. She may be waiting until she gets over the agony and annoyance of teething before she looks seriously into the matters of matrimony. If that should turn out to be the case, we are not surprised. Give her a chance to grow up, and in the meantime... Go and learn the organ-grinder's profession and fix yourself so that you can provide for a family. Sometimes a girl only seventeen years old is able to discern that a young intellectual giant like you 
is not going to make a dazzling success of life as a husband. Brace up and try to forget your sorrow, N.W.P., and you may be happy yet. THE GOOD TIME COMING Angora cloth is a Parisian novelty. Shaggy woolen goods are all the rage, and this Angora cloth is a perfect type of shaggy materials. It is a soft, downy article, like the fur of an Angora cat. Very showy toilets are of Angora cloth, trimmed with velvet applique work to form passementry. Angora cloth may be fashionable, but the odor of the Angora goat is losing favor. A herd of these goats crossed the Sierra Nevadas during the autumn, and as soon as they got over the range, we knew it at Laramie just as well as we knew of the earthquake shock on the seventh instant. The Angora goat is very quiet in other respects, but as a fragrant shrub, he certainly demands attention. A little band of Angora goats has been quartered in Laramie City lately, and though they have been well behaved, they have made themselves known, from time to time, whenever we have opened the casement to let in the glorious air of heaven. In letting in the glorious air of heaven, we have, in several instances, let in a good deal of the mohair industry and some seductive fragrance. There is a glowing prospect that, within the next year, a bone fertilizer mill, a soap emporium, and a glue factory will have been started here. And now, with the Angora goat looming up in the distance with his molasses candy horns, his erect but tremulous and undecided tail piercing the atmosphere, and the seductive odor peculiar to this fowl, we feel that life in Wyoming will not, after all, be a hollow mockery. Heretofore, we have been compelled to worry along with polygamy and the odor of the alkali flat. But times are changing now, and we will one day have all the wonderful and complicated smells of Chicago at our door. Then will the desert indeed blossom as the rose, and the mountain lion and Billy the Kid will lie down together. Mania for Marking Clothes the most quiet, unobtrusive man I ever knew, said Buck Brammel to a boomerang man, was a young fellow who went into North Park in an early day from the Salmon River. He was also reserved and taciturn among the miners, and never made any suggestions if he could avoid it. He was also the most thoughtful man about other people's comfort I ever knew. I went into the cabin one day where he was lying on the bed and told him I had decided to go into Laramie for a couple of weeks to do some trading. I put my valise down on the floor and was going out when he asked me if my clothes were marked. I told him that I never marked my clothes. If the washerwoman wanted to mix up my wardrobe with that of a female seminary, I would have to stand it, I supposed. He thought I ought to mark my clothes before I went away and said he would attend to it for me. So he took down his revolver and put three shots through the valise. After that, a coolness sprang up between us, and the warm friendship that had existed so long was more or less busted. After that, he marked a man's clothes over in Leadville in the same way. Only the man had them on at the time. He seemed to have a mania on that subject, and as they had no insanity experts at Leadville in those days, they thought the most economical way to examine his brain would be to hang him. 
and then send the brain to New York in a baking powder can. So they hung him one night to the bough of a sighing mountain pine. The autopsy was, of course, crude, but they sawed open his head and scooped out the brain with a long-handled spoon and sent it on to New York. By some mistake or other, he got mixed up with some sample specimens of ore from the Brindle Tom Cat discovery, and was sent to the assayer in New York instead of the insanity smelter and refiner as was intended. The result was that the assayer wrote a very touching and grieved letter to the boys, saying that he was an old man anyway, and he wished they would consider his gray hairs and not try to palm off their old groceries on him. He might have made errors in his essays, perhaps. All men were more or less liable to mistakes. But he flattered himself that he could still distinguish between a piece of blossom rock and a can of decomposed lobster salad, even if it was in a baking powder can. He hoped they would not try to be facetious at his expense any more, but use him as they would like to be treated themselves when they got old and began to totter down toward the silent tomb. This is why we never knew to a dead moral certainty whether he was okay in the upper story or not. Regarding the Nose The annals of surgery contain many cases where the nose has been cut or torn off, and being replaced has grown fast again, recovering its jeopardized functions. One of the earliest, 1680, is related by the surgeon Fioraventi, who happened to be nearby when a man's nose, having been cut off, had fallen in the sand. He remarks that he took it up, washed it, replaced it, and that it grew together. Still, this is a little bit hazardous, and in warm weather the nose might refuse to catch on. It would be mortifying in the extreme to have the nose drop off in a dish of ice cream at a large banquet. Not only would it be disagreeable to the owner of the nose, but those who sat near him. He adds the address of the owner of the repaired nose, and requests any doubter to go and examine for himself. Reginald, in the Gazette Salutaire, 1714, tells of a patient whose nose was bitten off by a smuggler. The owner of the nose wrapped it in a bit of cloth and sought Reginald, who, although the part was cold, reset it, and it became attached. This is another instance where, by being sufficiently previous, the nose was secured and handed down to future generations. Yet, as we said before, it is a little bit risky, and a nose of that character cannot be relied upon at all times. After a nose has once seceded, it cannot be expected to still adhere to the old constitution with such loyalty as prior to that change. Although these cases call for more credulity than most of us have to spare, yet later cases published in trustworthy journals would seem to corroborate this. In the Clinical Annals and Medical Gazette of Heidelberg, 1830, there are sixteen similar cases cited by the surgeon Dr. Hoffecker, who was appointed by the Senate to attend the duels of the students. It seems that during these duels it is not uncommon for a student to slice off the nose of his adversary and lay it on the table until the duel is over. After that the surgeon puts it on with mucilage and it never misses a meal, but keeps right on growing. The wax nose is attractive, 
but in a warm room it is apt to get excited and wander down into the mustache, or it may stray away under the collar, and when the proprietor goes to wipe the feature, he does not wipe anything but space. A gold nose that opens on one side is engraved, with hunter case and key wind, is attractive, especially on a bright day. The coin silver nose is very well in its way, but rather commonplace unless designed to match the tea service and the knives and forks. In that case, good taste is repaid by admiration and pleasure on the part of the guest. The papier-mâché nose is durable and less liable to become cold and disagreeable. It is also lighter and not liable to season crack. False noses are made of papier-mâché, leather, gold, silver, and wax. These last are fitted to spectacles or springs, and are difficult to distinguish from a true nose. Tycho Brahe lost his nose in a duel and wore a golden one, which he attached to his face with cement, which he always carried about. This was a good scheme, as it found him always prepared for accidents. He could at any moment repair to a dressing-room or even slide into an alley where he could avoid the prying gaze of the vulgar world and glue his nose on. Of course he ran the risk of getting it on crooked and a little out of line with his other features, but this would naturally only attract attention and fix the minds of those with whom he might be called upon to converse. A man with his nose glued on wrong side up could hold the attention of an audience for hours, when any other man would seem tedious and uninteresting. End of section 14